Rusty Quill presents. Hey everyone, it's Reg. Just dropping by to let you know we just released a brand new bonus episode for Hainai. Remind me to tell you later, Noche Buena. A Christmas-themed episode where Mary recalls childhood Christmases, both mundane and magic. All our bonus episodes are available for supporters of the $10 at the tier and above at patreon.com slash Supporters also get access to other audio, art, and video perks. It's the best way to support us and help us grow as a podcast, so sign up now. Maraming maraming salamat. Thank you so much. You're listening to Hainai by Motsi Dapu. Episode 35 Tauhan. life. The characters, these people, they live on through my writing in my library. My words giving them life, it's an intoxicating feeling. The act of creation through writing, it's the closest thing we have to feeling like gods. Well, apart from our benefactor, I suppose. What must it feel like to have power beyond what we elders even imagined, closer to godhood than any of us? People must seem so unimaginably insignificant to him. Ha! I suppose there must be some reason he's called Benefactor. He keeps us in our place, keeps us from overreaching, keeps us to the principles Savard kept before him, a benevolent ruler over his subjects, and such loyal people at his back, watching for knives. Mm. Do you think Richard Henry, the benefactor's right-hand man, Ever vies for power? Well, I doubt he'll ever use that advantage. The man has no ambition. 
He's always been happy to play second fiddle to whoever holds real power. I suppose he's comfortable in that role, and certainly the benefactor seems to care for him. Now that nobody remembers the benefactor's face, we all now think of Richard Henry, who acts in his stead in nearly all things. Yes, but it's still the benefactor's power, nobody else's. Not Richard Henry's, not. Well, nobody else's. I know. I know. It's been a while since we last talked. I've been... Well, I haven't been busy, really. I've just been... overwhelmed. I don't even really remember the last time we actually talked. No, wait. <laughs> yes, I do. Halloween. Undas. When people died, and I couldn't save them. People died. And I tried so hard to save them, but I couldn't. I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't... I need to do better. I know... I know if you were here, you'd tell me to stop. You'll only make things worse. Well, <laughs> that's unfair. You were a lot nicer to me than before. I guess around the time I got meaner. Teenagers, right? I am sorry it took me so long to call. I just needed time. I went to a party on Halloween, remember? Just a costume party. It was supposed to be a normal, fun night. I've been to restaurants before, built into old houses, and you can feel the ghosts, the memory of these places. Toronto's old lives with the new in ways many people don't realize, especially in old Toronto. But this place? It was a house of dolls, and I didn't realize what that meant until it was too late. There was a doll in the basement that held the soul of a powerful elder. Or, not quite an elder. The daughter of one, at least based on what we learned from Elaine. And she was more like me than she was like an elder. But she was selfish. All the power she had, just by the grace of the land and 
she used it to hurt others. It made me so angry. She lived selfish. She died selfish. And when she awoke from whatever magic kept her dormant, she woke up just as selfish, hurting others as she had before. She killed people. I tried to protect them, but I failed. I should have pushed. I should have gone further. I shouldn't have let it get that far. I'm sorry, Nene. One of them was my friend, and that shouldn't change anything, but he was good. He was good, and she killed him. And then... And then... Before all that, my friends, the detectives, they were trying to solve this case. A, a serial killer who struck some months ago and had a history of targeting a very specific type of person. Donner asked me to look into it, see if any elder magic was involved. And though I confirmed that no magic was present in the case itself, a connection was formed between this killer and a certain elder. And though I confirmed that no magic was present in the case itself, a connection was formed between this killer and a certain elder. An elder who saw a corruption building in this house with this family and these people. And he... he burned it all down. But he saved a boy. And that boy became a killer. Michael. Mikey. His sister Clara, she still lived in his memory because she loved him. But still, he killed, and he killed because he thought he could gain the power they possessed. He thought he could make sacrifices as though to a god and maybe become an angel, but angels, well, they protect people, and he had nobody left to protect. Hi, Evelyn. I know I promised to help you with this stuff, so I'm sorry it took so long. All this information is important, I, I know. <sighs> I found something in the files you gave me. Notes written on the empty backs of the journalist's old papers in invisible ink. <laughs> Don't ask me where I got a black light. Okay, it was a Cyber Monday sale, and I knew it would come in handy one day. Anyway... I don't know if Elaine knows they existed, but I'm going to record them here for you, just in case. It's revealing. So listen carefully.
if you're reading this, I'm certain of two things. One, that no elder can read this, so in the very least, I know you are not one of them. And two, that I am dead, or worse, and you've somehow found your way into my possessions that I have passed on to my loved ones. Elaine, or Franny, even. I am responsible for what happened to Elaine O'Donnell. I am responsible for Clifford Bolden learning of her existence. I have had a rapport with the elder known as Clifford Bolden for some time now. Of all the elders I've learned about, Bolden seemed the most benevolent in his search for a method of gathering power that did not involve fresh death. He was knowledgeable, more so than he himself seemed to realize having such an extensive collection of fear deaths, taken from the memory of foci. He let me go through his library, our shared fascination seemingly charming him to no end. I recorded as many stories as I could. These books were evil, and though I have no natural tendency towards magic the way I know certain others to be, I still felt ill whenever I was between the shelves. To carry the memories of the dead... They were bound with the skin of the dead, bought and paid for, taken from paupers' graves or off bodies in mortuaries, before morgue attendants went on with the embalming. Nobody notices patches of skin missing from a dressed corpse, after all. I could only read them in his presence, he said, because he kept me safe in the reading, where it might have been dangerous for others. He didn't know how many I'd taken home with me, protected by my own means. Pocket never appreciated it, of course. She hated these books with a passion, raising her hackles and hissing whenever I brought one into the house. Yet still, she stayed near me when I was transcribing what was written in those pages, ever the protective little sweetling. From my findings, I learned that Bolden had recorded hundreds of deaths, making up hundreds of books in his library. Most of these books reflected the death of individuals, one or two people caught in the same miasma. The most deaths he'd recorded from one memory, he said, came from a woman named Sylvia Lewin. Six souls trapped by one focus, strong enough, almost, to resurrect an elder without a head. Now I must explain what I mean by this. If you have encountered an elder and survived, you may have noticed how durable they can be. While a lost limb or two might slow them down, they seem to heal unnaturally quickly, and in that way, uphold their reputations as truly immortal. But they aren't. Or at least, they weren't. Not until the benefactor. From a friend and ally who was once part of the Ordo, I learned about the limitations of an elder's immortality. For though they are immortal, they are not unkillable. Destroy both heart and brain, and they cannot return to life, which they're able to do if there's enough magic in them to do so. Destroy one, and the cost of magic is much, much greater to bring back the other. My friend described how an elder was one stake through the heart, 
by one who believed her to be a vampire, and how that elder, left for dead, pushed the stake out of her heart and found her would-be killer. In his nightmare, his blood flowed out of him like a waterfall, and she took pleasure in drinking it from a wine glass before the fear death took him. My friend's concern was of a spell he knew other elders be using, a spell developed by one of the Ordo's inner circle, a spell of partition to divide the soul into their own foci, so that if the elder was destroyed utterly by an enemy, or even a traitorous ally, there would be a piece of them left. It would take many souls' worth of power to bring them back, but it was a risk many were willing to take regardless. Some foci remained as they were, while others were soul-bound, bearing a piece of the shattered soul of the elder who infused it. From what I understand, however, the man who developed this spell did not use it himself, though he gave the spell to others. The trick of it was this. The more one divides their soul, the less is left of them. One, two, even three might still bear a semblance of the elder they used to be. But more and more, and they become as animals, or more thoughtless than even that, bearing less of the ego and more of the id. My friend had seen many a focus bearing pieces of an old ally's soul, but hardly human. Certainly not smart enough or powerful enough to be a challenge, unless they had latched onto a haunting that was much stronger than they themselves were. A ghost or monster that existed in spaces where the veil was thin, often longer than the focus that unleashed them. The other thing that seemed not to occur to the elders was that dividing their soul might have a cost far beyond what they already believed they were paying for their payment was taken by force from others. They did not know, though it became clear to my friend, who had observed this phenomenon for decades, and spoken to the pieces of the soul that had their wits about them, that those who used the spell of partition were trapped here, in this world. They could not move on to the next life, while they remained divided, knowing naught but the void an endless purgatory of their own making, soul-bound to these foci. Perhaps if every focus that holds a piece of their soul was destroyed, they might be able to move on. But that's only a theory. Um, Mary here. This part, there's a lot crossed out, but I'll read what I can. There is, I learned, there were notes, I hope, I hope Miss Villeneuve forgives me for keeping this from her, but I don't believe it'll grant her any sort of peace to learn this, and if she realizes what it is that I've done, I hope she finds it in her heart to forgive me. I'm sorry, Miss V, I really am. These are my findings from the notes of one Mary Ann Weeks, an original member of the Ordo Fratrum Manus Passae, 
and from what I understand, the only woman of color among Savard's first elders. She was a brilliant woman, one of Savard's inner circle. She was close friends with the man who developed the spell of partition, but she understood its consequences all too well, and like him, refused to use it on herself. At least, for a while. Eventually, it seemed she had a change of heart. She chose to act against Savard, despite for all intents and purposes having his trust and respect. She was a powerful elder, but she stood alone, in some ways, by choice. She was not a trusting person, Marianne. She did not trust even her closest friend and compatriot, a man whose name I cannot remember no matter how many times I read it on the page. The man who made the spell of partition, who was so adept and powerful that he learned what it took to rend the human soul asunder. She took his spell and modified it. And in her experiments, she learned how to repair her friend's fatal flaw. For... According to her notes, Marianne Weeks was able to split her soul over a hundred times. And yet, she was able to remain herself, right to the bitter end. At the same time, she knew something that no other elder seemed to know. She knew how to pass on into the next life. She knew that she knew because when one of her foci, the very first she ever made, in fact, was destroyed, freeing the piece of her soul that it held within, she could feel it call to her from the other side. Like the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. Like an echo of an echo of a distant church bell, she said. The call, not of the void, but of natural death, and the life beyond life that elders forfeited to cling to this one more desperately. And how did she do this? Well, it seems so simple the way she says it, but such an undertaking could not have been achieved by a lesser woman or man, and certainly... It could not be achieved by other elders, who reveled in the taking of life for their own ends. Self-sacrifice. An unselfish urge to help others. Every time she divided a piece of herself into her foci, she did it not for power, nor for her own desires. She did it so that she might be able to save others from the fate suffered by her brother, John Robinson Weeks, whom she called her Jack Robin. <sighs> Apparently, Jack Robin was killed by a focus at the prime of his life, and it left Marianne devastated, though she did not show it to others. She was, as I learned from Miss V., a stoic woman, 
whose secret gentleness was reserved only for her loved ones. Of the siblings, Weeks the elder relied on Weeks the younger, his charm and wit, as much as he relied on her steadfast strength and thoughtful wisdom. They were quite the pair, once described by Jack Robin himself as different as a silent, elusive fish swimming agile in a river, and a singing, flitting bird. When he died, it was as though her soul had been torn already, so she was spiritually prepared for what she had to do to prevent even more death. She believed once, she said, that there was a higher purpose to it all, that sacrifices could be made for the greater good. But in the end, she realized, as she looked upon her brother's corpse, where once he was like a flitting bird, full of life and joy, that there was no greater purpose to be found here. Only those who were foolish enough to think themselves wise, simply because they had money and status and power. She must have saved countless lives with her good foci, but she alone could not account for every piece, dozens to each elder and dozens of them in turn and she chose not to rely on others, not even her beloved partner, and certainly not her dear friend. She was alone because she had to be. And though she did so much, it just was not enough. Even in writing, I ramble, but I provide important context for what happened the night we confronted the elder Clifford Bolden. In a desperate bid for power, Clifford Bolden sought to extract the story of Hyde from my friend, Elaine O'Donnell, for in her was the living memory of its fall, and the hundreds of people killed by Elder Magic. In this way, she was like a focus, but for the memories Bolden used for his books, rather than for the power of every soul. Bolden knew well of this night. It was a night the benefactor became more powerful than any other elder in existence, not simply through his cleverness nor his elder allies, but through raw magic power, taken from the hundreds of souls entrapped in living dolls by his enemy, the Puppet Master. Bolden had taken part in the war, in some small capacity. It was unnerving, he said, to see the Puppet Master's human dolls survive magic even elders would have trouble coming back from, sometimes without even flinching. Bones and flesh and sinew torn and shattered and displaced, but marching on regardless. He only learned of the Benefactor's new power when he returned to them from the underground. No elder had ever had such power. The puppet master frightened them for that very reason. And even a fraction of that power, the puppet master's power, the benefactor's, was what Bolden wanted for himself. Because he was afraid. And in the end, his principles were flexible in the face of fear. 
When I went to rescue Elaine from where Bolden took her, I meant to go alone. Myself and Pocket. It was too dangerous for allies, and it was my fault Elaine was targeted. So I didn't want to put that target on anyone else's back. That was how it was meant to go, but, well. I met Peter on the way. A young man who I knew from the paper. A photographer with a terribly puppy-like admiration of me and my work. Did what he does best, and decided to be a little tag-along. I sent him away as soon as I could. Usually I'd be kinder, because he meant well. But this time I just told him to scram. Shut the hell up and leave me to my work. But, well... <laughs> if it wasn't for him... I don't know if I would have survived. Sorry you had to see this. No, 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 she's not hurt. She's only sleeping. It makes extracting these memories of hers much easier. It's my first time attempting this on a living soul, but it's going very smoothly. Do I even? Of course I care. But you don't understand my position. You don't understand what it's like to ally with a man who has more power than I could ever have. To not share that power, but to share the enemies that want to take it from him. You don't know how it feels to do all the work that I have done to mitigate the harm of my fellow elders and have little more than crumbs to show for it. After everything I've done to preserve human life, to be... Better than my fellows, do I not deserve to feel safe? Do I not deserve even a fraction of the power that the benefactor has? You are an extraordinary human being, James Callahan. But you are a human being nonetheless. And you are on thin fucking ice. Do not get in my way.
I hesitated, and Cliff Bolden nearly killed me. I should have. I, I, I had the chance to stop him then and there, but I suppose I'm sentimental. Even when I lied to Bolden's face, it was nice to be trusted and respected for who I was outside of my tools. If Peter, the nosy little bastard, hadn't told Franny where I'd gone, I probably wouldn't be here to write this all down. They both got there just in time, with Franny acting fast, shot Bolden right in the back of the head, blew his skull open, and his brains all over the carpet. He was already healing around the wound when I took one of his expensive pens and shoved it into the back of his head to keep the bullet in place, and wrapped a cloth around his head to secure it, to keep him in a state of dreaded, empty death, in the way that only elders could be in. It would have been easier to kill him than in there, but, well, two things. One, we shot him through the heart with his brain blown out, and still, his body tried to heal, so... I knew he had done what many others had done and bound his soul to a focus. One we could not find no matter how hard we searched, even with Pocket's help. If it wasn't among his things or even his books. Two. His books. It would have made all our lives easier if his death meant his books would no longer be a problem, but... Instead... He was almost like a dead man's switch, and his presence was the only thing keeping them dormant. Imagine what might happen if we lost the ability to control his books. Imagine if all these horrific fates detailed in his books were loosed on the world. So all we can do is keep him bound until we find a better solution. And I do have an idea for a better solution. But it would require quite the sacrifice, one I can't let anyone else make. But I think I'll leave it until after I can look through his books. You're listening to Hainai by Motsi Dapul Hey everyone, it's Motsi. The current death toll in Gaza has exceeded 27,000 people, with over 66,000 wounded. The World Health Organization, or WHO, has reported that only 7 out of 24 hospitals remain functioning in northern Gaza, as Israel has bombed most of them. In southern Gaza, of 12 hospitals, only 7 remain partially functional. WHO and Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, have called for a ceasefire, with four MSF doctors and multiple family members of the organization killed by Israeli strikes since November. Please join their calls for a ceasefire. Keep pressuring your representatives to call for a complete ceasefire, especially if you are in the U.S., U.K., Canada, 
and other countries complicit in Israel's war crimes. Now more than ever, life-saving humanitarian aid must be provided to Palestinians, so we've linked ways you can directly support and aid people in Gaza. eSIMS for Gaza is a movement that helps Palestinians stay connected and communicate with their families, including medical personnel communicating in and between hospitals. Care for Gaza provides aid from within Gaza and is working every day to deliver food and other relief to those in need. We've also linked resources for trusted organizations active in Gaza, such as the PCRF, or Palestine Children's Relief Fund, as well as the World Central Kitchen, MAP, or Medical Aid for Palestinians, as well as the UNRWA, or the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East, whose life-saving humanitarian funding was recently cut by multiple countries based on conflicting claims that four, or ten, or twelve members are associated with Hamas out of approximately 13,000 members of the UNRWA, 3,000 of whom are operating in Gaza. Though some nations have pledged to reinstate their funding to continue the urgent humanitarian relief provided by the organization. Please donate if you can, or share these resources with others. And as always, thank you. We love you. And kalayaan at katarungan para sa Palestina. Crimes of the Marcuses. Nothing can be as frustrating or disheartening as commuting through the congested roads of Metro Manila. Out of 387 cities across 55 countries, Metro Manila has consistently topped the TomTom traffic index list of slowest travel time in the last few years reaching the number one spot in the last three. This is not an overpopulation problem, though it's certainly a factor. The government has consistently fallen short of implementing policies that would significantly reduce traffic. Corruption has made it so that railway projects take more than a decade to develop. Policies continue to favor the use of private cars, while more and more policies regulating public transportation are implemented. The most controversial of these projects is the Public Utility Vehicle Modernization Program. Under it, the Department of Transportation plans to consolidate and upgrade hundreds of thousands of public utility vehicles in the country. An electric jeepney unit would cost about a million pesos, or about 17,000 US dollars, not including the cost for upkeep and maintenance. The Department of Transportation has promised a subsidy, but this will only cover 20% of the cost and for only 5% of the jeepneys, forcing working-class drivers to shoulder the cost almost entirely. These are just one of the many examples of the Marcus administration favoring anti-poor policies. The traffic problem is not unique to this administration. However, just two weeks ago, Bongbong Marcos took his wife and other family members to a concert using the presidential helicopter. Important to note, this helicopter is paid for by Filipino taxes. They justified its use by citing safety issues, however, there was no reason for the family to attend this concert. This is not an official presidential visit. This isn't new. Bongbong, since his teenage years, has always used his position in the government as a way to fund his extravagant lifestyle, while millions of Filipinos suffer in poverty. Hey everyone, and welcome back. So good to see you guys after our short vacation break. Hope you didn't miss us too much. This is Reg Helly, co-creator and co-producer of Hainai, 
Haina is a podcast produced by Mozzie Dapple, Yoi Halago, Alisa Jimenez, and me, and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution non-commercial share-alike 4.0 international license. This episode was co-produced by Jesse Goodsell and written and directed by Mozzie Dapple, who plays the role of Mary Datuin. The role of Clifford Bolden was played by Kalal Tyler. If you'd like to chat with other listeners when this episode goes live, we do a live premiere every other Sunday at 9pm Eastern Standard Time or Toronto Time on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash To help support the production of Hainai, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash You'll get to be a part of our early access program where we release episodes three days earlier on Thursdays at 9pm Eastern Standard Time. You can get bonus video, audio, art, and so much more. Speaking of Patreon, we'd love to give a shout-out to the following patrons for all their amazing support and for helping keep us going. Victoria Goodwin, Pablo Neurotic, Megan, Malaya Light, Evie Smith, Danny, Astra Kim, and Jesse Goodsell. If you can't subscribe monthly, you also have the option to buy us a milk tea on coffee at coffee.com slash That's ko-fi.com slash Our ad-free Hainai album, which has our official music and full episodes from Act 1 and 2, is also available on both Patreon and the coffee store. Check out our website, hainaipod.com, for more news and updates, and don't forget to follow us on our official blog, hainaipod.tumblr.com, as well as our socials Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at hainaipod. Hainai is available on Acast and wherever you listen to podcasts. We hope you enjoy the rest of our Act 3 episodes, and as always, thank you, we love you, and hanggang sa muli. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.